0: Hello all and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Light Summer Special, a daily trawl through Danny O'Neill's run on the amazing Spider-Man. Issue 213 brings in another villain not normally associated with Spider-Man, the Wizard of Frightful Four Fae. The cover by John Romita Jr and Al Milgram sees Spider-Man chasing a robotic spider-like creature as the wizard, depicted as a floating head, manages to goad Spider-Man on. All they want to do is kill you, Spider-Man. It's by the same creative team as the previous issues, writer Denny O'Neill and artists John Romita Jr and Jim Mooney. It opens with a symbolic splash page of a kind we haven't really seen for a while. Spider-Man is back to the reader, suspended by a web line, looks on at two shadowy figures. One is clearly the wizard, the other a mystery. The story opens almost immediately after the last one, with the rainstorm implied to be caused at least partially by Hydro-Man still raging over New York City. Over at Riker's Island Prison, the storm covers a breakout. The mysterious figure recovers the wizard from jail, and with the aid of a large sea creature, they make... ...their escape. We've already mentioned O'Neill's excellent story construction... ...and it's no different in this issue. Two pages in, he's set up the villains... ...that one of them has a mad on for Spider-Man... ...and given us clues to who the mystery figure might be. All top-notch stuff. O'Neill then gives us more of Peter's problems... His Spider-Man costume is still stinky and itchy, and so, using a chemical bath of his own devising, Peter leaves the costume to soak, which will hopefully remove the smell and itching problem. In the meantime, he's popping out for a date with Deborah Whitman. He's glad of the reason to leave. His next-door neighbour's country catawalling is still driving him nuts. He's very mean about the date, though. A date with Deb Whitman isn't the most exciting thing in the world, he thinks. But it beats listening to that. There are interesting psychological reasons for Peter's casual disregard for Deb we could get into. With her oversized specs, mousy personality and bookish nature, she's very much like Peter was in high school, before being Spider-Man, and his relationship with outgoing, forceful women like MJ and Gwen has changed him. It's quite disheartening to see Peter treat this poor woman this badly, especially given his past. On his way out, Peter is gobsmacked by his hot new neighbour, as in he turns into a quivering, wobbly-kneed wreck, to the point where he forgets poor Deb's name. Despite this, or maybe because of it, Peter and Deb actually have a good night, pretending to be tourists and doing touristy things. Deb even invites Peter up to her apartment at the end of the date, an invite that fool that he is, he turns down when he hears a report about a giant mechanical spider crawling up the World Trade Center. Again, his uncensored thoughts about Deb are not flattering to Peter, who calls her a nice kid and thinks nothing of the kiss they should. He returns home to his costume, from which he has successfully managed to remove the smell and the itchiness, but also half of the colour. Ramita provides us with another great travelogue of New York, this time from the spider's eye view. Spider-Man tracks down the giant spider and disposes of it. But during the fight, the wizard manages to get a reading on the waves emitted by his spider sense. What? Spider-Man's spider sense gives off waves? Look, we're on shaky ground with the spider sense as it is, scientifically speaking. But to establish it gives off radio-like waves seems a bit weird. Then again, the whole spider sense concept has never been used consistently by writers, and even within the stories themselves, Peter often struggles to understand exactly what his spider sense is warning him of. It's something we go along with until it's specifically brought to our attention, and that then makes us think about it, which, you know, can lead to madness. Actually, a specific kind of madness, as recently spelt out in the Spider-Verse issue one, written by Jed McKay. In this issue... He had Miles Morales learn that the technical name for his spider sense is an arachnofrequency and that it is tied to a cosmic force known as the Web of Life and Destiny. The Web of Life and Destiny binds all of time and space together. It surrounds us, penetrates us, binds the universe. To... No, that's something else. But it is accessible on an instinctive level. Every Spider-Man has an innate sense of the world around them and even of what is yet to happen. Apparently, each Spider-Man from every alternate dimension has a unique and distinctive arachno-frequency. See what I mean about overanalyzing it, leading to madness? Again, kind I of wish we'd left it alone. As in many of Neil's scripts, he starts to bring it all together, although, as with many comics, the timeline gets out of whack. The events of the story indicate that this is all the same night, but it can't be. Peter left his apartment in his Spider-Man costume late on Saturday night. He specifically references being home for 11pm. However, two events happen that imply the next sequence of events are the next day. Number one, a wino named Charles Fortescue Smythington IV takes to the roof of Peter's apartment building to get drunk. That's an impressively implausible name. B, Peter is returning home in his civvies from ESU, thinking of how the university is putting up the fee for using the labs. He also has some cloth and thread that he just bought to sew himself a new suit, because he doesn't really fancy swinging around in a light blue and pink outfit. Number three, when he gets home, his neighbours are collecting the mail. Would they be really doing this at midnight? Number four, Peter's sexy new neighbour tells Peter of a tenants meeting on the roof to discuss a rent strike. Peter agrees to attend, however this is all a ruse by the wizard. He's tracked Spider-Man's Spider-Sense to Peter's apartment building, meaning he knows where Peter lives. He doesn't know which apartment, and he doesn't actually know that Peter is Spider-Man, but there seems quite a breach of security for Peter. Fortunately, Peter is asked by Jonah to get photos of a collapsed subway tunnel for which Jonah will pay him a $100 bonus if Peter can get them to him in half an hour with enough time to make the early edition. Peter can't afford to turn this down, but if he hustles he can get the photos, get them to Jonah and still make the tenants meeting. The saving of the people in the tunnel is a nice moment with Spider-Man actually being appreciated by the people of the city. He's just about to get back when he spots the wizard and his shadowy partner on the roof of the next apartment block. To distract Spider-Man, they're about to set his apartment block on fire. Now, a minute ago, I mentioned that he knows where Peter lives, but he doesn't know Peter's name. He doesn't know that Peter's Spider-Man. And some fans have took this to mean that the wizard now knows where Spider-Man lives. But in this scene, it makes it reasonably clear that because Spider-Man approaches from the opposite direction, they think that the wizard's little trick didn't work, so this isn't a breach of security, as I mentioned earlier on. There are a few nice gags here, though. I particularly like Spidey's quip about the wizard getting stoned as he chucks a web sack of bricks at him, and the low-key but exciting moment where Spidey rescues all of his neighbours, except Wino Charlie, who he wasn't expecting. As Spider-Man tries to save Charlie, the roof caves in. Now, I must make a confession. Some of my fondness from this era comes from these next few issues. See, Amazing Spider-Man issue 214 through 218 were some of the first Amazing Spider-Man comics I was able to get in consecutive order. Previously, I picked up US Marvel as and when I could, whatever that may be. This meant I had issues from all over the place, never in sequence and often years out of date. I got this run of issues timely and in order, so I'll always have a soft spot for them. Is this why I like them better than the Wolfman run? I don't think so. I still think these are better written than those, with Wolfman being far too melodramatic and relying on past continuity and old villains too much. O'Neill told a different kind of Spider-Man story, and I'll always give that a few extra marks. Issue 214 is another great cover from an Era that has just as many iconic and exceptional covers as the John Romita Sr. era. The Submariner and Spider Man fly slash swing in, their backs to camera. Waiting for them? The new Frightful Four. To keep in with the story, the fourth figure is still obscured so as not to ruin the reveal. The plain white background is what makes this pop. Then Shall We Both Be Betrayed shows the many benefits of the same creative team on every issue. The continuity is spot on, the story flows perfect and the reading experience unhampered by jarring artistic changes. O'Neill continues to build on many of the subplots he has bubbling along and it all starts coming together. The opening is a wonderful sequence, ably depicted by Ramita Jr. and Jim Mooney, with Spider-Man fighting to save Wino Charlie's life amidst the inferno. Tense and dramatic, it's a great scene underlined with the delicious irony that Charlie is so stinking drunk he remains completely oblivious to the actions of his saviour. With his building out of action, Peter and the tenants are put up in a five-star hotel thanks to the insurance on the building. Peter is delighted, until he learns he's still next door to the squawking country singer. O'Neill has been really good about this stuff. Peter's bad luck doesn't mean constantly upending the guy's life, or dumping miserable event after miserable event on his head, it simply means he has bad luck. And this is a great little comedic example of that. His look changes when his hot new neighbour pops by to watch TV, as hers is on the fritz. In a boob top and daisy dukes, she's being a tad obvious, and there's some non-too-subtle clues about her choice of viewing pleasure, especially on Riker's Island. Peter doesn't care, he's smitten. The wizard and his not-so-silent partner make their next move. Break the Sandman and the Trapster out of Riker's Island prison. It's a bit strange that the Sandman and, and the Trapster are allowed to wear the villain costumes in jail. But, you know, it's comics, Jake. Sandman has apparently been drugged to prevent him using his powers, so I suppose that's a little bit better than they just let them lollygag around in the in their costumes. Luckily for us, Namor has been keeping his eye on the shadowy fourth figure. And this leads Namor, because he's Namor, to blindly attack Peter's hot new neighbour. Hmm, the Thlot Pickens. Now, if you've been paying attention, it will not come as a surprise that Peter's hot new neighbour is in it up to her perfectly formed eyebrows. She isn't just a hot new neighbour, she's lighter a long-time foe of Namor who succeeded in killing Namor's missus, Dorma. The wizard zaps Namor and Spidey with his MacGuffin gun, leaving them writhing in pain, and it's to be continued. There's a low-key satisfaction to these issues. Nothing really happens with regards to Peter's life, and there is a distinct lack of a supporting cast, but they are really good stories. The action is well rendered and exciting and the Namor-Spider-Man fight doesn't quite go Spider-Man's way this time and that's a nice counterpoint to when they fought a couple of issues ago. Issue 215's cover is almost a page of the story. Spider-Man and Namor hold their heads in pain as the frightful four walk away confident that the... whatever this is, can keep them at bay. It's another Remita Jr. Al Milgram joint. By my powers, shall I be vanquished, is the prosaic title. There seems to be a run of such titles. And concludes the arc, albeit with a few loose ends. And it does so moderately well. O'Neill wraps up the main plots nicely over the course of the story. Spidey and Nemo get away after the FF are distracted by the police. This does give us yet another of those oft-taken-out-of-context panels where Spider-Man seems to give Spidey a sandy butt-plug up the bronzy sheriff badge. It does not look pleasant. Peter has taken quite the beating at the hands of Sandman and Trapster and can barely walk. Bruised and battered, he goes to Deb, who tends to his wounds, lets him sleep on her couch, and makes him a cracking breakfast the next day. And what does Peter do? He ditches her to go and check in with his new next-door hottie. And here's where the plot lost me a little bit. The wizard has taken Spider-Man's spider-sense out of Peter's head and putting in Namor's. The idea being that Namor will be driven mad by this increase in power. Why? Spidey's never been driven mad. Surely Namor would eventually learn how to control the spider-sense like Spider-Man did. The Frightful Four don't even seem to use this as an advantage when fighting Spider-Man. Him finding them in his hot neighbour's apartment is dumb luck. Seems a rather silly and pointless plan, but it does show that Spider-Man is better keeping his spider senses to himself. It's a unique and inordinately helpful ability that is best kept as a secret weapon, and I often think it's writers forgetting that just because we know something doesn't mean the characters know it. Peter would be smart enough to keep it to himself. The Wizard tacks one of his anti-gravity discs to Spider-Man and lets him float up, up and away. And he'd have surely died, though, either frozen or suffocated, if not for Namor, still out hunting for Lyra. Together, they team up to take on the FF. This is a great fight scene. Namor hits Sandman so hard, Sandy shoots jets of sand from all the orifices of his costume. And Spider-Man takes great joy in being able to punch the helmeted wizard so his head embeds in the wall. Fortunately, before this, the wizard has told Spidey and Neymar rather silly plan to swap the Spider-Sense around, and they both head over to the Baxter building to see if Reed Richards can help. They don't notice the Sandman trickling away, a subploit for us to pick up later on. At the Baxter building, Reed manages to put Spidey's Spider-Sense back in Spidey's head, rather easily and, frankly, quite implausibly. So much so, Denny notes how improbable this is in a caption. Back at his fancy hotel, Spider-Man pays a visit to Hot Neighbor, who is now off the charts insane, and she pretty much spells it out that she knows Peter is Spider-Man. She has been mind-controlling him since the beginning, and the story strongly implies that Lyra is causing Peter's sudden obsessive attraction to her, which partially lets him off the hook regarding Deb. Partially. The mind control is so much that even after she reveals her true form, Spider-Man is unable to harm her. Luckily, Namor arrives and tells Spidey that he is under her spell. With her telepathy, did she target Peter? Because otherwise, it's an awfully big coincidence that of all the buildings in New York, she should end up in Peter's. Namor is under no such spell and he punches Lyra's lights out, leaves and tells Spider-Man that Atlantean justice will take care of her. Spider-Man is left, pondering how awful he's been to Deb, and feeling like crap. There are problems with this story, most of which I've pointed out. The FF's plan doesn't make a lick of sense, the wizard's infatuation with Spider-Man is odd, given his track record is more with Reed Richards, and it could have been made a little clearer if Lyra knew Peter was Spider-Man and targeted him directly, or if this was dumb luck. But overall, it's a decent enough arc. Neymar is as obnoxious and arrogant as ever, and let's be honest, that's how I like him. He's not the buffoon that Aquaman has been turned into. He's a regal character, slightly aloof, and there's the torn-between-two-worlds angle that works for him. There's the good look bad luck scenario, with his building being fried and him getting a nice four-star hotel, contrasted with Lyra playing him for a fool and his treatment of Deb as a result of that. Issue 216 has a stupendous cover. Spider-Man swings over the New York Marathon, trying to stop a sniper. In an inset, we're promised the return of Madame Webb. The level of detail in this cover is at almost Perezian levels. Another corker from John Romita Jr. and Al Milgram. Marathon may be the pinnacle of Anil's run on the book. Acting as both the culmination of prior plot threads, whilst also being a reaffirmation of who Spider-Man is, it's actually a low-key triumph. Regular listeners will know I quite like chronology, and therefore this issue is baffling. Ostensibly, it takes place immediately after the last. Spider-Man is still in a bad way, bruised and limping and such, and his costume is torn and ragged, notably the cuts across his forehead. However... He's carrying a web sack, which he didn't have at the end of last issue. His thought balloons tell us he's heading back home, his building having been repaired after the devastation wrought by the wizard. I can only assume damage control were involved in the fixing of Peter's apartment building, because anyone who has ever had any house damage knows it can take weeks for the insurance to sort it all out. So Peter must have been to the hotel packed up his stuff, and so this has to be a few hours after last issue, rather than mere seconds. The splash is lovely. Spider-Man walks dejected on a rooftop, evoking many a dictko image. He's in a really bad way, and if we tot up the damage he's took over the last few issues with barely any rest, we can see not only is he badly wounded, but he's also suffering from exhaustion. O'Neill sells the hero-that-could-be-you angle without beating us over the head with it. Really, does Batman complain that he's tired? Peter decides to go and see Deb for some more TLC. After the last time, she'd be well within her rights to tell him to piss off. Oddly, he seems to leave the web pack behind somewhere. He can't have only taken that one change of clothes. And if he takes off his costume, rather than leaving it underneath his civvies, where does that go? He does take it off, because he's not got it on in the next couple of scenes. On the subway, Peter thinks that maybe there's a chance for he and Deb, showing that he hasn't been paying attention. He even thinks about MJ and Gwen for the first time in a long while. As Peter gets off the subway, he notes posters for a Barney wicker, a political hopeful running for congressman. He pays the usual amount of attention, which is to say, not very much at all. This is also in keeping with Peter's apolitical stance. Even in the Stan years, although Peter was with politically active people, he seemed to be worry and distrustful of all politicians, and O'Neill keeps that characteristic intact. The drop-by at Deb's does not go according to plan. Deb's old boyfriend, Biff Rifkin, has breezed back into her life. And whilst he's a bit of a jock-jerk, he does treat Deb well, which is more than we can say for our Mr Parker. In lieu of female TLC, Peter is forced to head to Greenwich Hospital. Throughout the issue, O'Neill again shows off his talents. He allows for background details like Barney Wicker posters, information about the upcoming marathon taking place tomorrow and New York citizens' reaction to same. All whilst Peter is in the foreground, paying little attention to it all. At the hospital, Peter is patched up and told that whilst he hasn't broken his ankle, he has sprained it and should stay off it for a week. Hmm, yeah, let's see how that goes. Whilst waiting for the doctor to bandage it up, he overhears a conversation that sounds ominous. Three men are plotting a shooting that will take someone out of the race permanently. It's never explained who these three men are or why they were plotting this assassination in a hospital. But Peter assumes that they are talking about a runner and he asks if Madame Webb can help. She is of no use at all. And Peter spends the next few days telling himself he can't get involved. He's in a bad way. He's got a sprained ankle. He's exhausted and has a banging headache. All of which pales into comparison with the poor sap who doesn't know he only has one day left to live. The three panels on page 11 where Peter realises he has to do something are wonderful. They're the moment where the music swells, the moment where the hero realises what he has to do, whatever the cost. And it's a wonderful mix of thoughts and images. Sequential comic storytelling at its very best. The rest of the issue is pretty fast-paced. Spider-Man follows the runners, preventing hit and runs from drunk drivers, pickpockets, disabled participants from being crushed, and kids from falling from a broken balcony. But he never finds out who the intended victim is. He even has some fun at Jonah's expense, who, for some reason, is here taking photos of the event himself. All the while, he ignores a ringing phone, only for a bystander to flag him down. The calls have been for him. It's Madame Webb, and she points out that it's Wicker who is the target. The race was a political one, not a literal one, and she points him to two men on a nearby water tower with an Armour Light A10 automatic rifle. Curiously, there were three men at the hospital. Despite the strain and the pain, Spider Man stops them by ripping the roof off a water tower and dropping it on their heads. Spider-Man running his own gauntlet is similar to the one ran by the marathon runners in that spider must push past the pain barrier, the wall, that moment of peak exhaustion, to achieve his goals. It's a potent metaphor for Spider-Man, who has a number of stories about never giving up when all seems lost. It's also one of the most subtle examples of it. O'Neill also seems to like leaving our hero in the dark. We, and he, never find out why these guys wanted to kill Wicker. Wicker never finds out this was even happening. And there's at least one person who got away, but it's still a thematically rich action story with a few really nice character moments for Peter. That's it for today's daily instalment. Next time we'll be covering issues 217 through 219. But first, before we go, I promised we would look at email, so let's do that. And that email comes from Just Brian, which is nice. Hi, Brian. Hi, Andy. I'm listening to your episode on the novelizations of the Star Trek films. I read the Star Trek 4 novel perhaps 30 years ago, but a couple of interesting elements stand out. Kirk and Spock need cash for bus fur, so Kirk sells his Benjamin Franklin glasses to an antiques dealer. Not having change for the bus, Kirk buys a peppermint patty and gives it to Spock, who eats it. Spock realises that the candy contains sucrose, which is apparently intoxicating to Vulcans. That is the reason provided for Spock using colourful language. He was drunk on sugar. Your discussion of the books bring back fond memories. Stay safe, Brian Rockland, New York. Well, thank you, Brian. I didn't notice that. Yeah, he does give him uh, some candy, doesn't he? Yeah, I've noticed the intoxicating thing. Okay, that about wraps it up for this time. We shall return next time. As I say, covering Denny O'Neill's issues of Amazing Spider-Man 217 through 219. You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and hopefully you'll join me tomorrow for the next chapter in this story. Bye-bye.